I see what I say. The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Today's episode is sponsored by Emblem Athletic. The best option out there for keeping your unit looking amazing with custom shirts, hoodies, and other gear. They're a veteran-owned business that specializes in making it easy for you. And if you've ever ordered unit gear, you know how difficult it can be. Emblem knows you have better things to do than design gear, collect money, and worst of all, sort through a bunch of shirts. Emblem takes care of everything, including, get this, free shipping worldwide. When it comes to something like a deployment shirt, you know you're going to have this for the rest of your life. So trust Emblem to deliver the best, guaranteed. Visit www.emblemathletic.com to get started with a free online store today. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly, and this week we're diving into the Green Notebook of Walter Isaacson. Walter is a New York Times bestselling author of numerous books to include Steve Jobs, Benjamin Franklin, and American Life, and Leonardo da Vinci. And in this episode, we discuss his latest book, The Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race. We talk about the science of gene editing, the moral implications of it, and even how this new technology led to the creation of the COVID-19 vaccine. He's also going to share some of the important life lessons he's learned writing biographies on some of history's most creative thinkers. So please welcome to the show, Walter Isaacson. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. I'm looking forward to this conversation. And since this is a podcast, it has a mostly military audience, Walter. I'd like to start out by asking a question about the oldest ongoing war on this planet, bacteria versus viruses. Could you tell our listeners about this microscopic war and why it's an important backdrop for your newest book? For more than a billion years, bacteria have been fighting off viruses that attack them, which is kind of relevant to us these days. And it is huge. I mean, there's about a trillion times more bacteria and viruses on this planet than any other organism. And bacteria have developed a wonderful defense mechanism, which is they can take a mugshot of any virus that attacks them and put that mugshot, a little bit of genetic sampling, into a clustered repeated sequence of their own DNA. And that's what's called CRISPRs. And when that virus attacks again, they got the mugshot, they've got the targeting information, they use RNA to target it, and they chop it up. And uh, what CRISPR is as a gene editing tool is the characters in my book, including Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, who just won the Nobel Prize for this, said, well, we can repurpose it. We can retarget that guide so it doesn't just fight off viruses for bacteria. It can edit or make cuts in our own genes, in our own human body. So that's what CRISPR is, and that's how it comes from this old bacterial defense system. And one of the observations you make early on in this book, and it's, you know, I thought it was very profound, but at the same time, very scary. 
about the current revolution that, that we're going through right now. What are like the three revolutions as, as you see it? And how would you describe the one that where we're at right now? I think the first great revolution of modern times is the physics revolution started by, you know, Einstein's papers and beginning of, uh, you know, the 20th century. And that gives us everything from the atom bomb to microchips to semiconductors to uh, space travel and GPS. And the second half of the 20th century was information technology revolution, a digital revolution based on the fact that all information can be encoded in binary digits, which we call bits. And that's the microchip, the computer, and the internet all woven together. I think around the year 2000, you can mark that point when we sequenced the human genome. We sequenced uh, the three billion letter pairs in uh, our DNA. And that was really the starting gun for the life sciences revolution. And that will involve everything from gene editing to using RNA as a messenger to build proteins in our body, including in the past few months, the proteins that give us immunity to the coronavirus. You mentioned Jennifer Doudna a little earlier, and she's a central character of your book, The Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing and the Future of the Human Race. So I'd like to go back a little bit in her life. You know, one of the things that you talk about with her is that when she was in sixth grade, her dad placed a copy of James Watson's The Double Helix on her bed. And how important was that gift to her journey to becoming a scientist? We all need inspirations. And uh, she saw in that book a scientist named Rosalind Franklin. And Jennifer said to herself, wow, girls can become scientists. And even though her school guidance counselor said, no, girls don't do science, she decided to make that her path and sort of become part of a journey of discovery because she was so curious about the secrets of nature. She knew how beautiful nature is. She grew up in Hawaii and saw how the sleeping grass curls or the seashells are spiraled in a certain way. And like all kids, she was in her wonder years and she said, well, why does that happen? But some of us outgrow our wonder years and quit asking those questions. The great thing about Jennifer Doudna is, you know, like any good scientist, like Steve Jobs or Einstein or Ben Franklin or Leonardo, they don't outgrow their wonder years. They stay curious. And so she decided to become a biologist and figure out the secrets of life. And my book is sort of an adventure story that follows her on this journey. And, you know, it's a great journey because not only does she find out the secret of how life began on the planet, she finds out the secrets of doing gene editing. And now her work on RNA has helped uh, make the vaccines that'll save us. All right, Walter, you opened the door mentioning your other biographies. So one of the things that like right now, I'm looking at my copy of your book, The Codebreaker. And when you talk about that aspect of Jennifer's life, I was looking at my margin notes. And in here, I wrote down, you know, Benjamin Franklin's dad's library. I wrote that Einstein's parents gave him a compass or like Paul Jobs built a workbench for Steve Jobs in his garage. And so as you've looked and written about the lives of these very important people, what role did their parents play in, in helping spark or foster a lifetime of being curious? That's interesting because I think in many cases, it's wanting to live up to parents. I mean, Leonardo da Vinci was born out of wedlock, and he always was searching for the affection of his father. 
he travels from the village of Vinci to Florence to be with his father. And he's a misfit, young Leonardo is. He's left-handed. He's born out of wedlock. He's gay. Feels like an outsider in Florence, and yet he becomes successful. Likewise, you know, Steve Jobs, he was adopted. Instead of feeling like he was abandoned as a child, his father told him, you weren't abandoned, you were chosen. I chose you to be my child. And uh, I think you see that over and over again. Jennifer Doudna's dad, Martin Doudna, was a professor of literature but encouraged her interest in science and pushed her. Even when she was like studying chemistry as an undergraduate at Pomona. And she said, well, maybe I'll go to graduate school in biology. And she applied to a few places. Her father said, why, why don't you apply to Harvard? And she says, because I'll never get into Harvard. And he says, you're right. You'll never get in if you don't apply. So she applies and she does. So I think you have to have parents who are not only pushing you, but actually genuinely interested in the things that interest you. And I remember all these scenes of Martin Doudna, who didn't understand biology that well, but went over the experiments and the results that his daughter Jennifer was doing and just kept asking questions to show that he cared, he was curious. And sometimes I think we knock that curiosity out of our kids. We say, quit asking so many dumb questions, as opposed to, pushing them to be more curious and for all of us to be interested in the things they're curious about. You mentioned Jennifer talking to her dad about the experiments that she was doing. It's funny because, you know, as I was preparing for this interview and reading your book, I'll be honest with you, Walter, I didn't pay attention in college biology. So like, as I was reading this, I was like, man, like if my professor would have said, hey, one day you'll be interviewing Walter Isaacson on this topic. So pay attention. I may have I may have done a little bit differently in college, but in preparing for this interview, I was trying to explain to my wife how gene editing worked, how CRISPR worked. And I found that just in talking with somebody about it, I was becoming clearer in my own thoughts to this process. And so I, I noticed that too with Jennifer's relationship with her dad. When you have to explain something, it helps you also articulate it and articulating it helps you understand it. Also, you know, the science in this book is pretty simple. If bacteria can do it, you know, we should be able to do it. They're not much smarter than we are. And it simply is something, you know, people in the military would easily understand because all of these things are targeting mechanisms, usually a guide RNA and a weapon, which is in this case, an enzyme or scissors. And that's what she discovered that bacteria used to fight viruses. And so she uh, repurposes it, re-engineers it, and it becomes a tool to edit our own genes and to fight our own virus attacks. Hey, Walter, on that as well, like one of the other things that you talk about in the book, or one of the, I guess, the themes that you explore is the relationship between teamwork and competition and the roles those played in the discovery of CRISPR and kind of where we're at today with gene editing. So how important were those two things, teamwork and competition to this process? You know, I think all of life, whether it's diplomacy or the military or business or science, involves a mix of cooperation and competition. And sometimes people would say of Jennifer Dowden in my book, well, she's very competitive. And I think sometimes they meant that to not be a compliment. And I'd say, well, that's a high compliment because she is very competitive. She had to struggle. And part of this book is a race where she's struggling against some people at MIT and Harvard 
in order to make this discovery. And she's fighting with them over the patents for this. But then when coronavirus comes along, both the people at MIT and Harvard and the people around Jennifer Doudna all turn their attention to fighting coronavirus. They don't assert patent rights on the things that they're discovering. They put it in the public domain every night, just posting it online. And they tell people, work with us. We're going to build on this to find detection tools and antivirals to be able to fight the coronavirus. So the important thing is to know how to compete, but also to know how to cooperate. And that works in business and it works in science and it works in the rest of life. And when you look back on some of the other biographies you've written, I mean, what role did cooperation and and teamwork play in, in the lives of these creative geniuses? Well, I think some of them are more collegial than others. When Steve Jobs was dying, you'll remember from the end of my book, I think I put this in. I asked him what was the greatest product he ever made. And I thought he would say the iPhone or the original Macintosh. And he said, well, making products is hard. But what's really hard is making a team that will continually make good products. And so my best product was the team I made at Apple. Now, Steve Jobs had a way of building teams, and he believed in creative tension, just like Franklin Roosevelt, just like Abraham Lincoln and Doris Kearns Goodwin's team of rivals. He liked to have people who would you know, conflict with each other in times and argue and push back. Jennifer was different. She emphasized collegiality in her team. She brought anybody in who was going to get a job on her team and having them meet the other people on the team to make sure the chemistry was good between them. I think, you know, there's no right answer on how to do it. When I asked Jennifer Doudna, are you missing something by not having more abrasive people on the team who, you know, have their elbows out while they're on the team? She said, well, some people prefer that method of building teams, but I prefer a method where everybody's more collegial. And I think both methods work. You just have to know what you're more comfortable with. It's a fascinating concept. Again, I feel like we value competition so much in the United States. And what I saw in your book is like those breakthroughs really started pushing through when when everybody really started working together with a common purpose. Yeah. And uh, I think that uh, the collaboration that was able to happen on CRISPR was interesting because it was totally international. I mean, the core team for Jennifer Doudna discovering the gene editing possibilities of CRISPR were herself and a French scientist named Emmanuel Charpentier. But there was a scientist who was born in the now the Czech Republic and another scientist who was born in Poland. And there are people around the world and they could work on Slack and work on Zoom and work on Google Docs and Dropbox. And they could form this international collaboration. Sometimes inventions are a bit of a lone genius thing. You know, a guy or a gal goes into a garage or a garret and out pops, you know, Facebook or out pops the light bulb out of Edison's den. Or even the first Apple computer where Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak did it in Steve Jobs' family garage. But as anybody, as you would know, and anybody who's been deployed would know, most of the time, creativity is a collaborative effort and, you know, it's a team sport. And so that's what I try to emphasize in this book, because that's particularly true of biology. 
And so diving into the biology a little bit, I mean, one of the other aspects you explore in the book is the kind of the philosophical aspects of it, especially gene editing. So first, before we dive further into this topic, could you describe the differences between somatic and germline editing, which is, I guess, kind of the core of this argument for mankind moving forward? Yes. Probably shouldn't use those uh, complex words because it's pretty simple. Somatic editing just means doing it in the patient's body, doing it for one individual. For example, Victoria Gray last year, a woman in Mississippi, was the first to be cured of sickle cell using CRISPR gene editing. And they took out bone marrow and the stem cells, edited them, put them back in her body, and she was cured. Germline editing means when you do it in the reproductive cells or early stage embryos, and thus the edits are not just for that one patient, but will be inherited by their children and all of their descendants. And so that's an inheritable genetic edit. And for me, and you know, we go through it in the book with a lot of people making the discussion on either side, but as I try to walk with the reader and with Jennifer Dowden, a hand in hand down the slippery slope of this ethical issues, I think that's a line we should be reluctant to cross, making inheritable edits rather than just doing it in a individual patient. Today's episode is also sponsored by veteran-owned Alpha Coffee Company. Their premium 100% Arabica coffee is freshly roasted for a bold, delicious flavor. Alpha Coffee supports veteran charities and has donated over 19,000 bags of coffee to deployed troops. They also offer a combinable 10% military discount and 10% off for subscriptions. Taste the Alpha difference. Purchase their coffee today from their online store or via Amazon Prime. One of the stories you pointed out was, I think, a young man who grew up with sickle cell. And, you know, when interviewed a little bit later on, he just talked about how going through that hardship of that disease formed his character, made him a more positive person. And I think you've also pointed to, you know, the role that Franklin Roosevelt's polio played in his ability. Well, I guess you mentioned that it shaped his character, but you mentioned Doris Kearns Goodwin, and she brings up that that bout with polio probably set him up for success in being able to lead the country through the Second World War. Exactly. And David Sanchez, the young guy with sickle cell that you referred to, is, I think, one of the best bioethical thinkers in my book, even though he's only 17 years old, loves playing basketball, except for when he doubles over in pain because he has a sickle cell attack. And so he's getting blood transfusions, trying to help him. And a researcher that's working with him says, you know, we've developed this technology in which we could edit the genes and we could edit the genes of your children, if you have children, and make them inheritable so that your children will never have sickle cell. And he said, wow, that's wonderful. But then he pauses and he says, well, I think that should be up to the kid rather than us doing it before the kid is born. And, you know, I say, why? And he says, well, as you pointed out, Joe, he says, well, sickle cell forged me. It helped forge my character. It helped me overcome adversity. It helped give me empathy. I thought, wow, that's a very deep, reflective thing to say. But, you know, as I talked to him later, I went back to him. He said, well, yeah, I would want to make sure my kids didn't have sickle cell. It's just incredibly painful. 
So yes, I guess I would have the edits to make sure they didn't have sickle cell, but I'd try to teach them empathy in other ways. And when I talk to Doris Kearns Goodwin, it's like the polio thing. Yes, polio forged Franklin Roosevelt's character. That said, if he had been able to have a vaccine when he was young and avoid having polio, he would have taken the vaccine. And likewise, all of us make sure our kids get the polio vaccine. And we don't think, well, maybe I shouldn't give it to them because then it's possible he or she will catch polio and turn out to be a Franklin Roosevelt. So we all have to look into ourselves and say, what do we want obstacles that are health obstacles? What do we want to try to fix if we can? And maybe there's some we don't want to try to fix because adversity and diversity are part of the human species. But I would say nobody wants their kids to have polio and nobody wants their kids to have sickle cell if they think about it, or very few people do. And so I would be in favor of allowing people to use genetic editing to get rid of sickle cell in their family. In the book, as you go through and talk about the different arguments and and walking through the different thought experiments. There's also this role, you know, scientists are going to come together and agree on, you know, kind of the ethics of gene editing. At least least I hope that continues to be the case. But now, as you know, earlier you talked about the different revolutions. So, you know, just like you have code hackers for computing, you also have biohackers, you know, that may not adopt the conventions that mainstream scientists come through. So what role do you think that biohackers are going to play in gene editing? Well, they push the world forward, as Steve Jobs said, of all misfits, rebels, and round pegs in the square hole. And uh, they also are an early warning sign that, okay, these type of things can be done. I've got Josiah Zayner, a young biohacker in my book, And I do it because he's able to hack, say, the gene that regulates myostatin and wants to give himself more muscle mass. You know, those type of things you can do now with genetic editing. I do think that if we have regulations, such as we have FDA regulations on what vaccines you can use and what treatments for cancer you can use and stuff, people can get around those regulations. They can use drugs in an off-label way. They can fly to you know, a Caribbean island and get certain treatments that are not approved. But generally on medical treatments, even though you're not going to be able to stop all rogue actors, you'll be able to stop 95 to 99% of them. And that's all that you can really hope for. And that probably keeps this genie pretty much in the bottle. That said, the Defense Department is very interested in these things. And this guy, Josiah Zayner, the biohacker we just talked about, he was invited to uh, a Pentagon think tank meeting on what can CRISPR do in terms of our military capabilities and what type of defenses do we need when it comes to CRISPR. And among the things he said is when the Defense Department wanted to deal with cyber threats, they enlisted the hacker community, meaning the cyber hackers, the digital hackers, the computer hacker community. He said, well, the Defense Department now should encourage and enlist and make use of the biohacker community, just like we use you know, computer hackers to help us figure out how to stop most, if not all, of uh, things that are done through computer hacking. And the Defense Department was the largest funder of my heroine, Jennifer Doudner's 
lab and research. First of all, to make soldiers safer, like finding gene edits that can make them less susceptible to radiation poison or other things. And secondly, to develop an amazing technology called anti-CRISPR, which is pretty much what it sounds like. Just like you can have a ballistic missile system, you can have an anti-ballistic missile system. And anti-CRISPR is a way to deactivate a CRISPR system if some rogue actor or enemy state tries to deploy gene-engineered mosquitoes, or for that matter, gene engineering that would affect uh, humans somehow. So this will be something that the military will focus on. Yeah, last year before I deployed, Walter, I think I got seven or eight shots in my arm, and I'm not really sure what all those were for. And so if Jennifer Downa can create something that reduces the number of shots, I think I'd be all for it. Well, you know, one of the things RNA technology will do is make the shots more highly targeted and be able to code for exactly what we want. In other words, instead of a broad types of vaccine against trying to do all sides of flu or strep throat, or for that matter, coronavirus, you'll be able to genetically sequence whatever virus is coming along. For that matter, whatever tumor you might have or whatever bacteria might be causing an infection. And that would make it so that you could precisely target what you need to do. Actually, a couple of years ago, there was a video that made the rounds on the internet called Slaughterbots. Did you get a chance to see that one when it... Uh, no, I didn't. I'm sorry. Basically, it was a fictional piece about what could happen, but it's about these small micro drones that were programmed to target specific individuals. And so as I was reading your book, I, I was just thinking about the national security implications for some of this stuff. So I wonder, was there anything in your book or your research that caused you to pause for a moment and maybe lose a night of sleep? Yeah, I mean, I do think it's quite possible that, you know, there will be inheritable gene edits that go into rogue actors' hands. When Jennifer discovered this technology, you know, a little while later, she has a nightmare. I'm talking about losing sleep. And the nightmare is there's somebody who wants to talk to her about this technology. And she looks up and the person looks up and it's Hitler. And so that's when she starts convening scientists from around the world to say, let's have some regulations and rules of the road. And we know we won't be able to stop all rogue players, but we'll be able because, you know, this is still a technology that's pretty complex to deploy. We'll be able to say, Let's draw these lines. Let's not make inheritable edits for the foreseeable future. Let's do what's medically necessary, but let's not do enhancements. Yeah, it scares me. I mean, it's interesting too. begin like the benefits of gene editing of, of CRISPR. And so one of the things that I was wondering, it's like the kind of like the crescendo of your book is the race to discover a vaccine for the coronavirus. But you didn't start this book. Like you started researching Jennifer Dalna well before Corona was even a thing, correct? Oh, yeah. I started this six, seven years ago because I felt the life sciences revolution was going to be huge. And I thought it was filled with colorful characters, you know, things like that. And then certain things happen. The Chinese doctor decides to make inheritable edits. The coronavirus hits. Jennifer Dalna and Emmanuel Sharpenjay surprisingly win the Nobel Prize after only eight years of working on things. So I realized that I was understating the case. It was far more important. And of course, coronavirus made it hit home, not just for me, but for all of us, why we need to understand the molecules of life. 
the book is so timely, Walter, and I think I finished it in a week. I think my biology teacher would be proud of me. Shifting focus now to, you know, just some of your past works. I'd just like to ask you a couple of questions. And one of those is like in our modern social media world, everyone shares their highlight reels on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And so one of the things that your biographies were actually the very first ones that I ever read, which stoked my love for biographies. But I love biographies because they show the messiness of real life and the hard work and the choices and the luck and all those things that just come together that help people achieve these great feats. And so that's like why I love reading them. But why do you think you're drawn to biographies? You know, it's not something new. I mean, this is the way the Bible does it. We tell lessons, we uh, go on journeys of discovery, we have ethical discussions, starting with, you know, Adam and Eve to the parables to, you know, the sermons of Jesus. So by doing it through people, it personalizes us. And I always like being a storyteller, and it's a way to impart information. And the best way to tell stories is through the people who make those stories. We have to realize that these aren't just impersonal forces happening around us, but these are people get up early in the morning and go to the lab and come up with a thought experiment of how they're going to do something. And then they have to wrestle with the ethical implications. And if you or any of our listeners are going to understand it, the best way to understand it, they say, well, let me walk hand in hand on this journey of discovery with this interesting person named Jennifer Doudna. And her colleagues, you know, Emmanuel Charpentier and her competitors, Fong Zhang and others. And that just not only personalizes it, but it makes it so that it's easy to comprehend because we can do it step by step on a journey with somebody who's making discoveries. When did you realize that you wanted to focus on writing about other people? Well, when I went to Time Magazine many, many years ago in the early 80s, Time Magazine always put a person on the cover. And uh, Henry Luce, who had invented Time Magazine, said, you know, that's the best way to tell a story of something. If you want to tell the story, you know, of late night television, you put Johnny Carson on the cover. I mean, to pick somebody far older than any of our listeners will remember what we're talking about. But that's the way I learned as a journalist even when I was working at local newspapers, I learned that if you wrote about a person, people could relate. So you get into biographies, start writing about these people. And have you learned a lot along the way in diving into these people's lives you know, about yourself or kind of adopted some of these things that you've written about? Yeah. I mean, I've learned to be more curious. I think that's an important trait to have. You know, I used to be curious as a kid, and then you sort of outgrow your wonder years. But I think of Einstein as a six-year-old getting a compass when he's a kid and wondering why the compass needle points north and nothing's pushing it, but it keeps jiggling and pointing north. And for his whole life, he's curious about force fields and how they relate to solid pieces of matter. And for me, when I walk around now, like Leonardo da Vinci or Einstein or Jennifer Taudner, I try to notice the ordinary things in life, like why water spirals when it passes a rock or goes down a drain, or why the sky is blue. And so that's the number one lesson I got from the people, is that I should pause maybe four or five times more a day 
than I usually do and pause for 30 seconds or so to be curious about something and then maybe follow up and learn about something. I'd like to share with you. So, you know, the website, the podcast is called From the Green Notebook. And I would say one of the most influential biographies of yours that I read was actually Leonardo da Vinci's. And I used to have multiple notebooks for everything. And then when I read that, granted, it was because paper was scarce back then. He had to write everything in a single notebook. But I found that in writing, (laughs) using everything that I'm doing, like grocery list, to-do list, insights, and putting it all in a single notebook, I'm able to kind of look across disciplines just like he did. So how important was that practice to Da Vinci's creativity? I think that jotting things down is a way to organize your thoughts, whether it's a Jennifer Doudna who has the scientific notebooks or Leonardo who carried notebooks on his belt whenever he went around. And Ben Franklin, of course, does his notebooks and his autobiography. And I think we've gotten out of that habit. We sort of tweet and post on Facebook and it sort of hangs around forever, but also kind of disappears and you don't go back. But Paper is a good technology. It has a very long battery life. It'll stick around. You don't have to have update the operating system of a regular notebook. So I think it's really important to keep some of your thoughts dotted in a notebook. It's really interesting, too, because I'm able to go back six, seven years ago to some of my like previous notebooks, my green notebooks, which are our military-issued ones. And look back at my thoughts and kind of the perspective I had back then. Do you have a similar practice with yours? Sometimes I love it. I'm moving, you know, houses now and I go back into the drawers where I keep all my notebooks. And it sort of reminds me of our journey. All of us are on a very interesting journey in life. And we all have milestones. We all learn along the way. And it's good to wake up every now and then to be reminded of what a magical journey we all are on in this planet, we happen to find ourselves, and some of the milestones we went on the way. Because I think another thing that's an important trait that I learned from my characters is gratitude. You know, people face a whole lot of hardships, people in the military more than the rest of us. But if you wake up every morning and think about the journey you've been on and the journey our society's been on, you can be grateful for being part of that journey even as you try to overcome your obstacles. Well, Walter, thank you very much for your time today. I learned a lot from this interview. And again, I really appreciate you doing the research and writing The Codebreaker, Jennifer Dowden, The Gene Editing and the Future of the Human Race. I thought it was a fascinating book. If people are interested to learn more about you, where can they find you? Are you on social media or have a website? My handle is at Walter Isaacson on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. Don't use it very much. My website is isaacson.tulane, T-U-L-A-N-E, dot E-D-U. And that's about it. It was really good being with you. It was good questions, Joe, and I appreciate how well you'd read the book. But I also appreciate what you do, and both in your day job and in your podcast. So thank you. Thank you so much, Walter. I appreciate your time. Have a great day. Have a great day. Thanks. Thank you again to all our listeners for joining us on another episode of From the Green Notebook. Check us out at fromthegreennotebook.com, where you can download past episodes, read some of our previous blog posts, and sign up for our monthly reading list and Sunday email. 
If you enjoy the podcast so far, please subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. And follow us on Twitter at FTG Notebook, as well as Instagram and Facebook. You can find us by just searching From the Green Notebook. So this is Jacob Garonsky signing off and hope you tune in to our next episode. I came from the mud. There's dirt on my hands. Strong like a tree. There's roots where I stand. Oh, I've been running from the law. Hope they won't shoot me down.